This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Please turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians. If you need a Bible, you can go ahead and shoot your hand up. Uh, we'd love to be able to get a Bible to you. We've got one over there, a couple coming around. Um, we'll make sure everyone has a copy of God's Word in their hands. I can project everything on the screen, but I want to make sure that, you know, I'm not just making this up. You actually see it in front of you, what God has said uh, through his Apostle Paul that he wrote in this letter to the church in Colossae. We've been working our way through this letter for the past several weeks as a church, and really what we've seen is that the theme of Colossians is that we don't need more than Jesus. What we need is more of Jesus. In order to grow spiritually, Christ truly is enough. And so with that in mind, we're going to read this morning Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. And these verses serve to really transition us from the opening part of this letter to now really what Paul describes as the crux of the reason why he wrote this letter in the first place. And then the rest of the letter is going to kind of be what, what, what we are to do, how we are to respond to the reason that Paul lays out that he wrote this letter. And so most commentators would say what we're about to read is actually considered the center part of the book of Colossians. And I think through these words, God has something very important to say to us. Let's turn our attention to God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. God, speaking through Paul, says to us, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he, has, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's bow our heads and ask for God to speak to us through the preaching of his word. And I want to encourage you just to have a moment of prayer between you and God. And just ask God, help me to hear what you have to say through what we're about to hear from your word. Just pray and open your hearts to God right now. 
Now, would you please be so kind to also pray for me that I would speak clearly and in a way that is faithful to God and helpful to you. God, thank you for this opportunity that we have to be addressed by you from your word. Would you give us ears to hear what you have to say so that our hearts might be increased in our love for Christ and you might be more glorified through our lives as we live out of an overflow of that love. We praise for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. A child's first step is always an exciting milestone. The look of pride as they kind of totter and teeter and begin to stumble their way forward. I remember being so excited when each of my children took their first step and began to learn how to walk. But then I remembered life begins to get a whole lot more complicated once your kid starts to learn how to walk. Because now all of a sudden they can walk off steps. They can walk and start to get into things. They can walk and find things that they can break. They can walk and find their way into the bathroom and begin to play in the toilet. Not that any of my children ever did that, but in theory I've heard it can happen. Life is a whole lot easier when you can just plop a baby on a blanket and they kind of sit there like turtles on their back and they just can't move anywhere, you know? Yet learning to walk is an important part of their development. Learning to walk and navigate the challenges that come with it is an important part of their growth. Similarly, Paul is telling us in this passage that it's important that we learn how to walk as Christians. Like life, walking spiritually requires strength and stamina. It involves both a direction and a destination. And, And through it, one must avoid the pitfalls and obstacles that can come our way as we seek to stay on course. God does not want to leave us as babies, lying helplessly on our backs. He wants us to grow up, to, as we saw last week, mature in Christ, to develop more and more spiritually as we learn more and more what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so if you're a Christian, then I think these verses that we just read in many ways are giving us a developmental guide, if you will, for how we can learn more about what it means to walk with Christ. They don't say everything there is about walking with Jesus, but they do give us some important steps that we need to learn to take. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or are still trying to figure out what all that means, thanks just so much for being with us. It's so great to have you here. And I hope in these verses you hear God inviting you to consider what it means to truly be a Christian. It's not what you might think. It's a whole lot deeper and a whole lot better. And so I'm going to tell this morning's sermon, Walking with Jesus. Walking with Jesus. And in order to walk with Jesus, we're we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see that in order to walk with Jesus, we must deepen our intimacy with Jesus. We must deepen our intimacy with Jesus. Second, we must resist adding anything to Jesus. We must resist adding anything to Jesus. And then third, we must remember our identity in Jesus. We must remember our identity in Jesus. So first, in order to walk with Jesus, we must deepen our intimacy with Jesus. Paul begins this section by reminding the Colossians of their position as those, he says, who have received Christ Jesus, the Lord. 
This is what it means to be a Christian. It means to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is the Greek word of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. This Christ, again, as we saw last week, was a figure in the Old Testament that that was spoken about who would come and would bring God's rescue and redemption for anyone who would trust in him. And so to be a Christian is to believe someone that Jesus, the man who was born in Nazareth, was not just the man who was born in Nazareth. He is this anointed one of God. He is both fully God and fully man. He is Jesus, the Christ, the one who is sent by God to rescue us from our sins. He is Jesus, the Christ, who is, it says, Christ Jesus, the Lord. That word Lord means sovereign one, is a title used in scripture to speak about God alone. This rescue of God comes directly from God because Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator who stepped into creation and became one of us so that he could take on the judgment of our sin and bring salvation to us. And being Christians is believing all these things about Jesus. Being a Christian is not about following a certain set of religious rules, although certainly there are moral standards that God wants us to live by. But what makes us who we are, what defines Christianity, is not what we do, but who we believe Jesus to be. He is Christ the Lord. But knowing this is not just the beginning of the Christian life. No, as we're told here in verse 6, as we have received this, so now we are to walk in this. Paul goes on then in verse 7 to give four participles to describe what it means to walk in Christ. He says, be rooted in him, be built up in him, be strengthened in him, overflow with thanksgiving for him. And if you've been with us in this series, you'll see some echoes of things we've already talked about in this letter. Each of these participles mirror what Paul prayed for the Colossians in chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And so in verse 10, for example, of chapter 1, he prayed that they would bear fruit. What happens when you are rooted? You bear fruit. He prayed that they would also, in verse 10 of chapter 1, that they would grow. It's the same word actually here as being built up. In verse 11 of chapter 1, he prayed that they would be strengthened. It's a very similar word to here in our chapter of being established. And in verse 12 of chapter 1, he prayed that they would be overflowing with gratitude. And here he says, abound with thanksgiving. And so what we're seeing is that in chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, Paul prays for these things to happen. And now here in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, he's saying, get to work at making these things happen. This demonstrates a very important reality about the Christian life. On the one hand, we are to live with humble dependence on God. We need to pray for his help because we need his power. We cannot do anything apart from him. But prayerful dependency on the Lord is not meant to create spiritual passivity in us. No, as we trust his power, we should get to work. We are to pray, and then we're to put effort into turning that prayer into our practice. See, practice without prayer is powerless. It will not work. But prayer without practice is laziness. You're not doing any work. And so both prayer and practice, God's power and our effort, are necessary in order to grow in our walk with Christ. 
Paul's first phrases are be rooted up and build up and establish. These are really three ways of saying the exact same thing. Being rooted speaks to Jesus being the healthy soil into which we must plant our lives and draw nourishment. And just like a plant will not grow if it's consistently being uprooted and replanted, so too we cannot grow unless we're learning more and more how to continue to seek, sink our roots deep into Christ. Build up is about Jesus being our foundation. He's, he's the solid rock on which we stand, the, the foundation on which we build our lives. Established means that we're not moving on from him. No, we're learning more and more how to rest in him, how to lean on Christ in our lives. And so each of these phrases really pointing us to this. We do not grow through moving on from Jesus. No, we grow by moving deeper into our relationship with Jesus. We grow by getting closer to him, by deepening our roots in him, by building our lives in him, by establishing our hearts with him. This is what it means to deepen our intimacy with Christ. Friends, our goal as Christians should be to love Jesus more today than I did yesterday. To have our hearts just a little bit more rooted in him. To have our lives just a little bit more built on him. To lean a little more and establish ourselves a little bit more on him. And there are many ways that we can do this. There are many ways that we can grow in our intimacy in Christ that Scripture lays out for us. But this passage draws our attention to one particular way that we can grow in our intimacy in Christ. We are to be rooted, built up, and established, abounding in thanksgiving. What we are thankful for, we love. And what we love, we end up becoming even more thankful for. Thanksgiving creates a cycle where love for what we are giving thanks for just continues to grow and deepen. It's actually a bunch of studies that have been done that show there's a direct correlation between the closeness, the intimacy that couples feel together and how often they express gratitude for one another. One of the healthiest signs that a marriage is going to last for a long time is because couples are regularly expressing thanksgiving for one another. Brain scans show that we can actually, when we experience gratitude, when we express gratitude, dopamine is released, which is the reward for, for doing something. It's what for, it makes us, dopamine makes us feel happy and content. And so you want to start feeling a little more happy, start being a little more grateful. It also, gratitude increases the activity in the part of our brain that promotes empathy and bonding. And so few things are better at helping you feel close to someone than actively expressing gratitude for them. And so as a quick aside, but if you have a relationship in your life that isn't going too well, start learning how to be more thankful for that person, and you'll start feeling a lot closer to that person. A little free relationship advice. You can thank me later. But the same is true in our intimacy with Christ. The more we express thanks to God, the more we abound in thanksgiving for all of who he is in Jesus, the more we'll go deeper into our intimacy with Jesus. How often do you thank God for who he is? Not, not just what he gives. We should thank God for what he gives. Thank God that he, you know, gave you maybe a house or a car or food on your table. Like, thank God for what he gives. Absolutely. Don't take that for granted. But man, don't just thank him for the gifts. Thank him that he's a giver. Thank him not just for what he gives you. Thank him for who he is for you. Here's an encouragement. Consider starting and ending your day just finding ways to thank God for who he is. 
I guarantee you it will change how you go through life. Start your day and end your day just by thanking God for who he is. Maybe, maybe take some time and write that down. Read your Bible, and as you read your Bible, ask yourself this question. What is this telling me about Jesus that I should be grateful for? If every passage is about him, which is what he says, then how is this passage of Scripture telling me that I should be thankful for Christ? The other day in my personal Bible reading, I was reading through one of those long genealogies. Let's be honest, those are not the most exciting parts of the Bible to read. Um, But here's what the Lord brought to my heart. I didn't know who most of those people are, right? Most of the people in genealogies, that's all they're known for is being in a genealogy. Uh, That's about all you know. Some people, there's a little more backstory. Most people, honestly, there's not. There's just their random name that uh, I have no idea how to pronounce. And so that's why I don't even read publicly genealogies, because I'll just make a fool of myself more than I usually do. But as I was reading through these genealogies, what God just brought to my mind is I'm so grateful that what we're seeing here is God's preserving his promise. That through generation after generation after generation, he was going to use all these different people to ultimately bring about the one person, Jesus Christ. What we're seeing in genealogies is we're seeing God's faithfulness that our lives did not, the human race did not end with Adam and Eve and their sin. What we're seeing in each person born after them is grace upon grace upon grace as God brings through them the savior and rescuer of the world. This genealogy was full of a bunch of weird names, but my heart was drawn to abounding with thanksgiving. God, thank you for your faithfulness. Because of these people who are named here who I'll never meet, I know you. And so I thank you, Lord God. I thank you for what you've done. And so my encouragement is just try to find ways throughout your day to be thankful for Christ. Thankful for who he is for you. Because in order to walk with Jesus, we must deepen our intimacy with Jesus. And thanksgiving is one of the ways that we can deepen our intimacy with Christ. We must deepen our intimacy with Christ if we want to walk with him. Second, in order to walk with Christ, we must resist adding anything to Christ. We are given a command in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. Here Paul brings two categories of things that can get added to Christ, philosophy and elemental spirits. He's going to describe both of these things in greater detail in verses 16 through 23, which we're going to look at next week, so I'm not going to get too much into those details now, but really we need to see the big categories that he's setting up here. He's contrasting these things. Philosophies is what? According to human tradition. So it's a way of thinking according to ways that humans have always thought. That's what he's saying. Elemental spirits are according to the world. It's not spirituality according to God, but spirituality according to other things. And notice what they both have in common. He says, both are not according to Christ. See, these Colossians, what was happening to them is they were bringing things into their faith that were not a denial of Jesus. They they were not saying they didn't believe in Christ. They were just adding things that are not in accordance with Christ. They're adding things in addition to him. What had happened most likely is that false teachers had come in and were saying that Jesus is good, but he's not enough. 
You need some additional philosophies. You need to learn some new things in addition to Christ. You, you need to have some other spiritual experiences, so some, some experiences with these elemental spirits of the world in addition to Christ. If you have these things, well, then that's how you'll truly grow. That's how you'll truly mature. But Paul is saying, no, you can't grow in Christ by adding to Christ. Because Jesus is, as verse 9 tells us, the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. To see Jesus is to see God. Because Jesus is fully God. And so if you have him, if you are filled with him, as verse 10 says, then you have all the fullness that you need. If something is completely full, then it can't become more full. We can't become any more full than the fullness that we already have in Christ. And thinking that we need to add something to Jesus is like thinking we need to put some ketchup on a really expensive steak. Right? You're not adding anything to it. All you're showing is that you don't really appreciate what you've been given. You don't put ketchup on a steak in case you didn't realize that. You just enjoy what's been prepared for you. We aren't to put things onto Christ. We're just to enjoy and appreciate who Christ is. Adding to Jesus is not an addition. It's actually a subtraction that shows we don't really fully appreciate him and the fullness of who he is. Friends, there is nothing that you can add to your faith that will give you more than you already have in Jesus. There is nothing you can add to your faith that will give you more than you already have in Jesus. Which is why Paul says, don't become captive to that kind of thinking. Thinking that we need more than Jesus, it's a trap. It'll, it'll capture you. It's a snare that will, will hold you down. It's as he goes on to say, an empty deceit. Heard that phrase, empty deceit, that made me think of something that can happen in my family sometimes. Sometimes I'll go into our pantry to get what I think is a full box of cereal, only to find out that it is in there empty. It is an empty deceit. And I'm not going to blame any one particular person for putting back empty things, but it's not our dogs. I'll just say that. And so instead of being satisfied in what I thought would bring me nourishment, I find myself unsatisfied, and now I need to go eat something else. That's what happens to us when we reach for things other than Christ. It might look full. It might look appealing. We might think it's going to nourish us. But when we take that thing down and we begin to open it up, we'll find that it's just empty and we'll still be hungry. Now, most people are not going to come out. Most Christians are not going to come out and say, oh, yes, I need, thing in my, need things in my life in addition to Christ. Like Most Christians are not going to say that. It's something I, I rarely hear people say. But I think subtly... While we don't say that, we can still live that way. Think about this. What do you think you need in your life right now in order to say that you're happy and content? What do, you, what do you think you need? What comes to mind? How often we can have a list. When I get this, then I'll be happy. When I experience this, then I'll be content. When, when this occurs in my life, then finally I'll be able to grow. And so subtly, we're experiencing that, yes, we have Jesus, but we also need Jesus plus financial security. 
We need Jesus plus a spouse. We need Jesus plus my kids doing well in life. We need Jesus plus being in good health. Right? And the list goes on and on. And the reality is you can go to the Christian section of a bookstore and find all kinds of books that would be more than happy to tell you about how to find Jesus plus. And listen, there's, there's nothing wrong with desiring hard circumstances to be changed and to pursuing that change in your life. I'm someone who lives with a chronic illness. You better believe me that I try to pursue change in that area as much as I can. Like, I take my medicine, I have a diet that I follow, I try to exercise because I found that to be helpful, and I continue to pray for a miracle that God would heal me from my disease. I want good health. But friends, more than anything, I want to fight to be satisfied in Christ, even without good health. When I was two years into my marriage, some of you heard me share a story before. It was a major life-sharing, shaping moment. I had this major flare of my Crohn's disease. I had to have extensive surgery in order to save my life. And a result of all that I went through, doctors told me and my wife that um, they weren't sure how long the surgery was going to last. I might need another, which is not what you want to hear when you've just been through something really painful. And also as a result, we were only two years in. We didn't have any children. We were told that we, we might not be able to have children as a couple, which was not news that I'd ever expected to hear. I'll never forget Angie going home that night because she wasn't able to stay with me and I'm lying on that hospital gurney in a dark room, just the beeps of the IVs in my body. I was in incredible pain and faced with an uncertain future. It was one of the darkest moments of my life. I was wrestling with God. How can this be happening? Honestly, I was saying, I don't deserve this. Even more clear to me was, my wife definitely doesn't deserve this. She she, she didn't sign up to be married to an invalid. I start going down some really scary roads of, man, she would be so better off without me. My life felt like it had all become just too much. In the midst of one of the darkest moments of despair I've ever had, I felt God in his kindness asking me a question. Am I enough for you? Am I enough for you? You don't have health. You might not be able to have kids. But am I enough? you. What the Lord started to help me see is that even though there were times I had good health, I remember back to those times, it wasn't like I didn't have other struggles. You know, being delivered from one set of challenges only leads you to another set of challenges. As we live in this broken and fallen world where so many sad things can happen. And so what God did in my heart that night is start me on a journey that I certainly have not arrived in and I need to fight for every single day. He started me on a journey of wanting to live in such a way that Christ is always enough. Because until he's enough, I know I'll never feel like I have enough. See, suddenly in my heart, I had added to Jesus. But what God was showing me in that moment was that all I really needed 
was Jesus. And it's a daily fight to remember that, to be sure. But friends, it is worth that fight because our souls were created to be satisfied in Him. And so there's a sweetness to be found in realizing that we don't need anything else but Him. As I was preparing the sermon, and actually it was very encouraging to hear Joe's prophetic word this morning, so I felt like this was God just confirming what He put on my heart. I believe the Holy Spirit was telling me that there are people here today who have really become captive in their lives because you've been looking to satisfaction in things other than Christ. Not necessarily bad things, maybe even good things. You've been experiencing anxiety, stress, frustration, maybe even some depression. You feel like those feelings, just they never seem to lift from you fully. Here's the phrase that God brought to my mind that maybe you've been saying, it's just too much. It's just too much. That seems to be the theme of your life. Your job is just too much right now. That unexpected thing that happened, you didn't see it coming, now you don't know what to do, it's just too much. Your kids are struggling and it's a burden you're not sure you can bear anymore, it's just too much. There's pressure on you financially, you are experiencing poor health, you are experiencing just a persistent struggle that doesn't seem to end, and it's just too much. And you feel like, I just, I need these things to change. Friends, listen, I pray those circumstances would change. I spent time this morning praying for anyone who's feeling like it's too much, that whatever's in your life right now that feels like too much, that, that God's hand of favor would come and he would relieve those circumstances and bring healing to that part of your life. I prayed that for you this morning. But I also believe God wanted you to hear his heart clearly on this. Real freedom is not going to come through getting your circumstances to change. Real freedom is going to come through getting your heart to change. What you most desperately need is what I most desperately need, and that is to see that Christ is all we need. We think we need something else, then we'll be living like captives. We'll be, we'll be ensnared to these desires. We'll be always pursuing the next thing that we think will finally make us happy. Always chasing the next goal. Always waiting for the next thing to happen. But then when that comes through, let me tell you, because I've been there, it, it won't be enough. You'll need the next thing after that. Because we get that thing and we find that there's something else that we feel like we need. But friends, anything else but Christ, it just enslaves us because it never satisfied us. And so real freedom is found when we, we hold out to God the things we want to see him do. We hold them out. Lord, please meet me in these circumstances. We, we lift them up to God, but we lift them up with open hands. Your will be done, not mine. Jesus, I want to see you move in this way. But Jesus, all I need is you. That's a place of freedom, friends. And that's how we walk with Christ. In order to walk with him, we need to deepen our intimacy in him. And we need to resist adding anything to him. He needs to be enough. And then finally, we need to remember our identity in him. In order to walk with Jesus, we must remember our identity in Christ. Verse 10 says that to be a Christian is to be someone who has been filled in Christ. That word filled means to be made complete, to be finished. Think about it this way. A contract or an important document is not finished until it is signed. 
and all the responsible parties have put their names down on it, have identified themselves. And so what finishes a Christian, what completes us, is Christ's name being put over us. It's us finding and knowing that we have an identity that comes from him. And nothing can change who we are in him because he is, as verse 10 says, the head of all rule and authority. I love that that's how this section starts. As Paul is going to go on and unpack in verses 11 through 15 different aspects of our identity in Christ. But before he does that, he establishes who Christ is. He's saying, hey, I'm going to tell you all these wonderful things about Jesus, but before I do that, you need to know that Jesus is the one with all, of all authority. And so here's what he's saying. All these things that I'm going to tell you about who you are in Christ, there's no one and nothing that can undo that because no one can trump his authority. What Jesus says is final. There's no court of appeal that's higher than him. There's no further legislation that can change anything he has said. What Jesus declares is what is because he is the head of all rule and authority. And so in verse 11 through 15, it just gives us this incredible and glorious picture of who Jesus says we are in his final authority in him. And in the original Greek, this is just one long run-on sentence. It's like Paul can't catch his breath as he starts rolling through what it means to be one, to find our identity with Christ. He begins by saying that in Christ we are circumcised, not in the flesh, so not physically, but spiritually. And that's a word picture that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to us because it sounds kind of weird to our modern ears. But it's really powerful when we begin to understand its historical context. In ancient times, circumcision was not common. Rarely anyone was circumcised. It was actually seen as a little bit of a deformity. But in Genesis chapter 17, God tells Abraham that circumcision is how he wanted him to mark his male descendants so that they could be shown that they and their families that they would bear are God's special people. And so circumcision was a sign of God's covenant. God's promise to be one with his people. His promise to bless Abraham and to make Abraham into a mighty nation through which all the nations, all the peoples of the world would be, would be blessed. But here's what Paul is showing us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Is that the circumcision that was a sign of the old covenant under Abraham has now been replaced in the new covenant in Christ with baptism. And, and, and when we... We come into the new people of Christ, and in the old covenant, you could be born into it. You were a Jew because you were born to a Jewish family. In the new covenant, you become a Christian, not by being born into it, but by being born again into it. You become part of God's people by placing your faith in Christ. And when we become Christians, when we are born again by the Holy Spirit, through our faith in Jesus, the sign of being a Christian, the sign of being part of God's people, the sign of the new covenant is no longer circumcision, it is baptism. That's why Paul calls baptism the circumcision of Christ. It's the sign that God gives us to mark us out as God's people after we place our faith in him. And this new sign is not just for babies who are born. This is for anyone who is born again in him. This is no longer just for males. This is for male and female because everyone is welcome as an equal participant into God's family in Jesus. And so when we place our faith in Christ, we are to express that spiritual reality through the physical symbol of being baptized to show that as Jesus went down to the grave as a payment for our sins, 
we place our faith in him, we are, as, as it says in verse 12, we are buried with him in baptism. When we are baptized, we get put into those baptismal waters all the way down. Just like Christ went all the way down into death. We are symbolizing that his death is what we are now fully immersed in. And that just as Christ was raised in the grave, so too we are now raised with him. That's why on the side of our baptismal that we take when we baptize people here, it says raised with Christ. This is what we're symbolizing. This is what it is. Baptism is being united with Jesus' death and showing the unity we have with him in his resurrected life. And so baptism is the celebration that even though we were once dead in our trespasses, we are now, as verse 13 tells us, made alive together with him. Oh, we were dead in our trespasses. We had hearts that were hardened towards God. We were living our own way, wanting to go our own way. We were dead. But praise God that he's a God who can raise the dead. God touched us and brought our dead hearts beating back to life. For some people, it can be a long process where they're searching after him, stumbling after him, and eventually come to know him. For some people, it's something that happens in a moment. But regardless your story of coming to faith in Jesus, there's only one author of everyone's story, and that is God who makes us alive. And in doing so, and make us alive, he says at the end of verse 13, we are forgiven of all our trespasses. Here's who we are in Christ. We are alive and we are forgiven. We are alive and we are forgiven. And we are forgiven of all our sins. Not some of our sins. Not just the respectable sins. No, all our sins. No exclusions. No provisos. No expiration dates. Your sins, if you placed your faith in Christ, your sins past, your sins present, your sins future that you still even yet to do, all of your sins create a debt that you owed to God. But because of what Christ has done for you, your sins past, present, and future have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. For our life of sin, we owe God back our life. The payment of sin is death. But Christ came. As verse 14 tells us, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us. And how did he cancel it? Not just by saying it is canceled. That would have been an injustice. Something had to be done. A debt was owed. Someone had to pay it. And so how did Christ set aside our debt? By nailing it to the cross. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 24 says that Jesus himself bore in his body our sins upon the tree. How did Christ nail our sins to the cross? By becoming our sin and being nailed to the cross. What we're seeing at the cross of Jesus Christ, friends, is not the death of a martyr showing us a nice example of love. No, what we're seeing is the death of our Savior being nailed for our lusts, our lies, our greed. You're seeing your selfishness hanging on that tree. 
They're seeing your anger hanging on that tree. They're seeing your self-righteousness and your criticalness and your judgmentalism and gluttony and lack of self-control. I mean, the list of our sin goes on and on. And there is Christ. And for every sin of everyone who would put their faith in Him, there is Christ being nailed to the cross to pay the debt that you owe. And because He was nailed to that cross, our debt has been canceled because Jesus paid it all. And there now is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins and sinners washed beneath its flood lose all their guilty stains. Friends, in the authority of Christ, this is who He declares you to be if you are in Him. You are no longer dead, but alive. You are no longer someone who owes a debt of death to God, but someone whose debt has been forgiven because your death was paid by Jesus. And there's nothing that anyone, not even the spiritual forces of darkness, can do about it. Because as verse 15 says, Jesus has disarmed them. Let's be clear, Satan and his demons used to have real power, which was not just physical oppression. This is actually what the Bible says their power was. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says, through his death, mean Jesus, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil. What was the power that the devil had? It was the power of death over us. How, how do you have the power of death? Well, because sin creates a debt of death. As we just saw. And so what would happen is when we sin, Satan had the power to accuse us. God, see their sin. God, you know what your law deserves. They deserve to die. They deserve to be eternally cast out of your presence. The power of Satan was the power of his accusation. And his accusations were powerful because they were true. We are sinners and we do deserve death for our sin. And so Satan had the power of death. As he accused us before God. But when Christ came. And when Christ died. When Jesus said no one takes my life. But I choose to lay it down. Through that mighty act. He broke the power of Satan. He took away Satan's right to accuse. Because now every time Satan tries to accuse us of our sin. Christ can say see my scars. Which paid for their sin. See, at the cross of Christ, Satan was decisively defeated. He has been triumphed over. Let's be clear, he now lives in open shame because his threats are now hollow. Oh, you might still feel the sting of his accusations. He will certainly still try to send fiery darts of doubt deep into your hearts. But when Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there. Who made an end of all my sin. And because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied. To look on Jesus. And pardon me. Friends this is who you are in Christ. You are alive. You are forgiven. 
you are free. Satan has no longer anything to say against Christ's redeemed. And walking with Jesus is empowered by remembering who we are in Jesus. We don't walk with Jesus just by trying to exert greater willpower. No, we walk with Jesus by looking to him and seeing the fullness of who he is and all that he's done for us. And in that place of dependency and surrender, we live our lives in the goodness of his grace. So friends, as we, as we come to a close, just as learning to walk is an important part of our physical life, so too learning to walk with Jesus is an important part of our spiritual life. And it's not a one and done thing. It's a lifelong lesson. There's, there's never a time when we graduate from walking with Jesus. It's a continual need that we have. And so, friend, that my encouragement to you is just to let this text speak to your heart. My encouragement to you is to continue to pursue deepening your intimacy with Jesus. To resist adding anything to Jesus. There's some things today you need to, you've been holding on to with a closed fist. God's asking you to give him with an open hand. We, we, we need to deepen our intimacy with Christ. We need to resist adding anything to Christ. And we need to remember our identity in Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus, friends, this is where you start. You start by believing in him, by trusting in him. You start by receiving him and all of who he is. And if you are a follower of Jesus, this is how you grow. As you have received him, so now walk in him. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.